gosh, was that some beautiful worship or what? Good morning. I'm Susie Bates. I'm the Generations Pastor here at Pulpit Rock. And that means I have the great privilege of leading the teams that run our kids' ministry and our student ministry. I love what I get to do. I adore who I get to do it with. Uh, We have a lot of fun on the Generations team. Um, I feel really blessed to be here. I want to start this morning by reminding you of something that we think is really important around here. And that is this, that you are created in the image of God, and he loves you deeply. And that's true of all of us. And if that's the case, that we're all image bearers, then as we move in closer to each other, we see more of God's face, and we experience more of God's love. It's this beautiful thing that he invites us to be a part of in each other's lives. So we're in this series in Matthew called Angry Jesus, and we've been looking at the ways we see Jesus consistently raise his voice in anger. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, then we can look at what made him angry and what didn't make him angry, and then we can align ourselves with what our God is passionate about. And we've been using this metaphor that I love um, of seeing God like the frustrated dad driving the car, wanting to use fear and discipline just to get the kids to behave. I can relate to that. I think most of us can. Um, I asked my mom to dig up an old family picture of us in one of our family cars, so I brought one for you today. Um, That is me on the left. I'm rocking some sweet shades. And then uh, that's my older sister, Jessica, on the far right. And that's my older brother, Zach, next to her. And I don't know who the long legs kid is there. Uh, My mom didn't know either. We we would often like pick up neighborhood kids and stuff. So that's just, I don't know. She's happy to be there though. Uh, But that's that station wagon that a lot of us um, had growing up. I can recall multiple family car rides in the car where my dad had just had it with us. And he did the whole, don't make me pull this car over thing. It's like the best threat ever. Uh, and my dad's really tall. He has like really long limbs, long, long arms and long legs. And I don't know if your dad ever did this, but he did the thing where he has one hand on the steering wheel and he starts like blindly slapping into the back seat. He's just trying to connect to like any kid's leg really. He doesn't care who it is. Trying to prompt some obedience. Um, my siblings and I, we were like Olympic athletes and being able to jump back so he couldn't reach our legs in that back seat. Uh, Most of our family road trips were actually not in this car. It was in a 1978 Cadillac. My dad called it the tuna boat. Um, I asked my mom, do you have a picture of of that Cadillac that we would ride around? And she couldn't find one anywhere. So I Googled the make and model and color, um, and the Google offered lots of options uh, to show you guys this car. And I picked this one because I just like the fact they just parked it in the lawn. It's like, you know what, we got a sweet Cadillac. I'm just going to pull right up into the yard. I thought that was great. But that's that's the vehicle we spent most of our family car rides in. And as angry as my brother and sister and I could make my dad while riding in that car, we had a lot of fun times. My dad's a lot of fun. He's a really fun guy. He loves to joke. And it was the 80s. There were no seatbelt laws back then, and so we could just, like, run amok all over the car. I'm sure you guys can relate to that. Uh, My dad would actually let me sit in his lap while he was driving. And he'd let me put my hands on the steering wheel and he'd hold it down here. But, uh, you know, make me think I was driving. He'd be like, wave at everybody when you pass. They're going to freak out, you know. He's like going to get arrested this morning. But that legit happened. Uh, But man, if we started to act up in that back seat, the fun was over. 
We had these times uh, that my parents would do the, you know, no more talking. You know what? Don't even look at each other thing. Like, I actually said that to my kids last week. I was like, no talking. Don't even look at each other. It's a great moment when you say something your parents said to you your whole life. Um, but, but our go-to when my parents would do the, you can't talk and you can't look at each other, our go-to in the back seat was to spread out. And the three of us, we had a lot of room in the back of that car. My sister would stretch out on the seat. My brother would stretch out on the huge floorboard. And I kid you not, I would lie down in the back dash of this car. I was small enough, there was plenty of room. I would like stretch out back there. It felt huge to me. Um, so I spent a lot of time riding in the back dash of a car just like that. I was telling my friend about that this weekend, and she was like, what's the back dash? And I was like, okay, so there's like the front windshield and the front dash, the back windshield and the back dash, right? Like not every car has that, but, and she goes, oh, like where some people line up like they're Beanie Babies in the back. I was like, yes, that's it. Beanie Babies and Susie in the 80s. That, that was it. Uh, I was like the original backup camera. I would like lay back there and my dad would do the thing like, how am I doing back there as we back up? Good dad, if, we, if you get too close, I'll start beeping at you, okay? Oh man, I have fond memories of riding in that car, uh, family road trips. I love road trips. I, I actually have always been about the journey. Um, just the adventure and the journey has always been very appealing to me. Um, I'm learning about the Enneagram, and I think that like the seven on the Enneagram resonates the most with me. Um, has anyone here heard of the Enneagram? There's like nine types. Man, not many. Okay, some of you have, okay. Well, um, the Enneagram, it's kind of like Myers-Briggs personality uh, typing, but it goes a lot deeper than that. It helps us understand like our motivations, um, the way we were created to bear God's image, each of us individually, um, and then how that can be, become distorted. Um, so the Enneagram has nine types, and I think I'm a seven on the Enneagram. Uh, they call it the adventurer or the epicure. Um, experiences are real important to us sevens. We have great value for the journey, uh, really even more so than the destination. I mean, it's amusing to me how easy it is for me to enjoy the journey in almost every area of my life. And I say almost because this series that we've been in has shed some light on an area that I really struggle to just enjoy the journey. And that is in my faith journey. And that makes me really sad. Because like as Christians, like don't we have so much to be filled with joy over? Like we should enjoy our spirituality. And that's hard for me sometimes. There's something about my spirituality that can easily just start to feel dutiful. Like I really should be praying more. I should be more available to others. Um, sometimes I feel like my faith should be more disciplined. Like there's this draw for us to have these like regimented spiritual habits. And I feel really bad if I'm not keeping those up like I think I should. So if it's so natural for me to just enjoy the journey and literally every other area of my life, why do I find it so hard to do that in my faith journey? Well, like I said, I've gained some perspective as I've been studying the passage that we're going to be in today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 23. And, I'm, and we're going to be looking at the woes to the Pharisees. I'm going to be in the NIV version, but whatever version you have will be just fine, as well as um, whatever uh, device you may have the Bible app on. So Matthew 23, um, we're only going to look at a few, the first few of, of the woes to the Pharisees, but there are a total of seven, seven being the number of God's completion or perfection. We see this as a reminder that God's judgment will be complete 
and it will be perfectly just. And I'm just saying there has to be something special about the sevens on the Enneagram. It's like God's number, right? Okay, in our language, the word woe is often used to express emotion, like regret or distress. Um, we've all heard the phrase, woe is me, right? Well, actually, in the Greek language, the word for woe is uai, and it's actually defined as even more than just distress. It would also be defined as an exclamation of grief. And that should make sense to us, because Jesus never just got angry. Because of what, what he wants for his people, because of the way he loves us, his people, it makes sense that he also has deep sadness over these things that he's upset about. And in this passage, we're going to see that. A little Jesus' anger and a little Jesus' grief. And it's all directed at the Pharisees. These words of Jesus come right on the heels of a string of debates that are revealing the responsibility of the Jewish authorities for not leading their people to the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus has just acknowledged their official capacity as religious leaders, but he's also just called them out on some specific instances where they are just flat out missing it. So what follows in Matthew 23:13 is a series of woes, and it's aimed directly at the Pharisees. Let's take a look. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And I'm curious what Jesus would define as trying to enter the kingdom of heaven as. Would it be saying the Lord's Prayer? Would it be coming to church? Would it be reciting the sinner's prayer? I don't know if it would always look like those things. We do know what the Pharisees would say that effort looks like, though. They would say, make your prayer boxes bigger. Make your prayer tassels longer. Watch out for this danger. Remember to do this thing every day. Sit in the chief places at the dinners and the best seats in the synagogues. Check all these boxes and make sure people see you doing it. This is what it meant to be a Pharisee. And they saw this as great devotion and attention to the detail of the commandments that God had given Israel. But Jesus is condemning these leaders. Why is that? Well, people who say they love God sometimes kill him when he shows up. This list of efforts that they are holding up as true pursuit of God is missing the person of truth entirely. This checklist is too much to bear. No one can do all these things and do them all perfectly. God's heart is not that we would all be convinced of this to-do list and have some heavy pack of rules thrown on our back so we can fall in line, barely able to stand. Jesus wants us to follow him, not a list of man-made rules. In fact, our Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus flings the doors of his kingdom wide open, and the Pharisees are just slamming them shut. I love living in Colorado. Um, the weather here is absolutely divine, and it's that time of year. It's so gorgeous. If you don't have um, air conditioning in your house, all you do is open up all your windows at night. We do that every night. We all sleep on the top level, and it can get hot up there. So just like clockwork, every evening I go open them all up and let it cool off. And... Um, 
I come from Oklahoma where the wind comes sweeping down the plains, but I have found that the wind comes sweeping down the mountains here in Colorado. I can't tell you how many times in the middle of the night we're all fast asleep and all the windows are open and here comes this giant gust of wind like down Pikes Peak through our, the upstairs level of our house and slams the door shut in the middle of the night. We're like, oh my gosh, you know, the kids are like, what's happening? It's this horrible way to wake up. It happens all the time. I know that sound. I can recall that slamming door. And I remember the first time I heard that sound when the door to the kingdom was slammed shut in the face of someone trying to enter. Sadly, you've probably heard that sound too. I can audibly recall the sound of the slamming door when I think of a young man that my husband was trying to pour into years ago. This young man did not know Jesus and he had a fair amount of difficulty in his life. And my husband, Matt, had been gently trying to pull him in to this group of Jesus-following teenagers that we were leading. And one of the churches in town, we were in a little small community, um, hosted a breakfast for all the teenagers of the faith community in town. And we were so excited uh, because we could convince this kid to come because there was like all-you-can-eat pancakes. And he was like, I'll be there. We're like, yes, he's going to come. And it was held at a more conservative-type church. And as the teenagers were entering the building, uh, there was a man who went to that church who ironically was standing there actually holding the door open as the teenagers came in. And as this kid walked in ahead of us, he had on a baseball cap. And this man holding the door open grabbed the cap off his head, slapped it on his chest, and said, this is a place of worship. You've got to show some respect. Oh, my gosh. This kid was just mortified, totally embarrassed. And Matt and I were behind him, and we're just like, are you kidding me? He finally came. Like, this kid is never going to come back. Man, a slammed door over a baseball cap. I think what Jesus said to the Pharisees would be similar to what he would say to that man. And thankfully, that may seem pretty far removed from who we are as a church. But do you see how easily we can fall into this tendency? What if there was someone interested in coming to Pulpit Rock who started coming on a weekly basis uh, but insisted on smoking some cigarettes outside before they came in? What if there's a woman who started showing up and every week when she got here, she smelled like last night's booze. What if we had teenagers start coming to our programs who say they're openly gay? We know no one here would physically slam the doors of our church shut on anyone for anything like that. But do we get close to doing that if we are critical of the journey that they're on? I think we can relate to this example whether we'd like to admit it or not. We all have our things, right? Like our lines that we draw, we're like, I can put up with a lot, but that, that thing, no, that's, that's too far for me. The Pharisees loved doing that. They had a bunch of those things. Let's receive the grief and anger that Jesus has over this behavior. It's religion is what it is. As Jonathan said a few weeks ago, religion attacks and criticizes the journey of others. This was the Pharisees' M.O. They loved doing this all the time to everyone around them. That's a slammed door. Lines drawn. There are people in and there are people out. And Jesus is calling them out for this. It filled him with anger and grief. It should fill our hearts with anger and grief as well. 
Jesus goes on in verse 15, and he addresses the Pharisees' message and their converts. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much the child of hell that you are. Child of hell. I kind of like angry Jesus, I'll be honest. Now, to be clear, when he's talking about a convert here, he's not talking about someone who's won over by the good news, beginning their, their journey in following Jesus. He's talking about someone who is convinced of the Pharisees' checklist and has begun the journey the Pharisees have laid out as the pathway to God. These converts are like Pharisee mini-me's. They all look and act the same. Jesus has already pointed out that the Pharisees are just missing it. Their checklist has become more important than the human souls around them, and now they are convincing others to join them in this endeavor. See, the Pharisees did it backwards. They got their converts to check all the boxes first, and then they granted them belonging. This way they can control everyone. There's no one in who's out of line. Things have been straightened up before the acceptance was granted. That just sounds awful. No wonder Jesus called them children of hell. There's no heart change in a process like that. They are missing it. You know, we really aspire to be the church that says you have to feel like you belong before you could ever believe. This is how Jesus wooed his followers. He spoke to their hearts first. He drew them in to a place where real heart change could happen. It's that picture that Jonathan painted of God not being the angry dad driving the car, shouting at the kids. No, he does what Becky did, Jonathan's wife. She climbs into the back seat with us, draws us in. I love what Alan Hirsch says about the church and its consistency with the way our church believes in our mission. He says this, the church carries out the work that Jesus started and it does it in a way that is consistent with who Jesus was and how he went about his ministry. Jesus set his work of bringing the kingdom of God to earth in motion, and we are just carrying on his mission. He modeled it for us. Go to the people who, who need a physician. Meet them where they are. Let the children come. The Pharisees' ministry did not look like Jesus's. Religion is not consistent with who Jesus was and how he went about his ministry. Religion made Jesus angry. Let's keep reading in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And then Jesus goes on to say something similar about the altar or the gift on the altar. But what really stuck out to me here is Jesus calling them blind guides. That description leapt off the page at me. When I was in college in my pursuit of adventure and journeying, um, I, I had, wow, I was so blessed. I landed the best job ever. I got to work for three months as a backpacking guide in the backcountry of Yosemite National Park in Northern California. Um, I slept under the stars for three months. I carried everything I needed on my back. Um, I led groups to some of the most secluded, breathtaking views that you can find in North America. 
It was really incredible. As the guide, I was responsible for the group's well-being, right? I had the map. I knew the trails. They were following me. I can't imagine trying to guide them if I were blind. What did Jesus mean by this? I still spend time on trails, but now they are right out my door. Um, I live in Pleasant Valley. It's a little valley right next to the Garden of the Gods. And I have this loop that I've marked out. I can leave from my front step and walk through the garden. Um, and I know exactly how long it'll take me. I know exactly how many calories I can burn doing this hike. And it's just beautiful. Um, I hike up onto this little ridge and I see this view of the kissing camels um, that you can't see anywhere else in town. And then it drops me down into this little valley. And if you look up at the, at the perfect spot, the peak is like right beneath those two red fins of rock. And it's not up high like the scene we're used to seeing. Oh, it's just gorgeous. It's like the front of a postcard. It probably literally is the front of a postcard. It's crazy to me how different that Garden of the Gods scene can look, depending on where you are in town. Um, like even pulling up here this morning on this second level of the parking lot, like the rocks seem so small and they're kind of in the shadow of the peak. Even when you're in the garden, walking around, just depending on where you are, you get this different view. Truly, has anyone here ever seen a view of the garden, whether driving or hiking, no matter where you are or what it looked like? Has anyone here ever truly seen it and looked at it and taken it in and just been like, eh, I mean, it's okay, I guess, if you're like really into, you know, breathtaking beauty. Like, no. When we truly see it, we truly see it, right? You can't help but take it in. But how many of us could say that we've driven by those rocks or gotten a beautiful, or, or by a beautiful view of the peak, whether in your car or on foot, and you've, and you've totally missed it just for not even realizing it was there, focusing on something else. It's crazy to me how many times I hike through the same section and I totally forget to look up. I'm just like, I don't know, I'm lost in thought. I'm looking at the ground, like looking at my feet, and I just miss it. It's not like I looked up and saw it. I didn't even look up. I walked right by it. I think that's a good description of what the Pharisees uh, were missing. And I think that may be closer to what Jesus actually meant when he called them blind guides. They weren't blind. Their obsessive focus on their checklists or their comparisons or their critiquing of others, it left them blind to the very kingdom of God taking shape around them. They have people following them, watching them. They don't want to trip up. But they're sure quick to take note if someone else trips up. Their focus is their destination and how well they can get there. Sadly, I can relate to that sometimes. Their focus should have been on God's heart for them and God's heart for his people and the people around them. That's what Jesus' ministry looked like. This angry message from Jesus that is an exclamation of grief, is calling the Pharisees out for missing it. They were so focused on their destination and whether or not people were making the journey to that destination in the right way that they missed what was quite possibly the purpose all along. The journey itself. A friend of mine shared something she witnessed while picking her kids up from their elementary school recently and I thought it painted the most beautiful and accurate picture 
of what Jesus' heart for his people is. And I think it helps explain why Jesus was so grieved and angry at the way the Pharisees led people. So my friend was waiting in the carpool line to pick up her kids from school. And all of a sudden, out of this side door of the school, it flings open and outruns a little girl. She's like sprinting away from the school out into this like open field playground area. And that got her attention. She's like, whoa, where, where's that kid going? The door flies open again and out comes an adult teacher sprinting after this little girl. And then here comes another adult. And then here comes the principal. And they're all like running out onto this field together. And what my friend witnessed was these adults respond to this little crisis in a very Christ-like way. This faculty could have been completely justified to yank that little girl's arm, sit her down, and say, you can't act this way. I don't care what your problem is. You've got to work it out appropriately, and you're going to be disciplined. And I mean, those would have been very natural consequences for this child, right? But instead... My friend witnessed these adults sort of create a wide perimeter around this little girl. They gave her tons of space. They just kept her on the property, make sure she was safe. And as they felt the processing begin to take place, they moved in closer. They spoke calmly and lovingly to this child. And by the time my friend had made it through the carpool and gotten her kids and was pulling out, these adults are sitting with this little girl on a bench. They're rubbing her back. They're talking softly to her. They're consoling her. They had climbed into that back seat with her. They gave her some time and space to run it out and work it out and cry it out. And then they just joined her in that journey. What a picture of Jesus. Those adults were not concerned about the fact that this girl was breaking the rules. She certainly was. But they were seeing the beautiful view of the processing and the journey that she was on. They were not distracted by, she's not supposed to be doing that. We don't find Jesus waiting at the finish line for us so that when we finally arrive at godliness, he only welcomes us then. He doesn't shun us or discipline us or shame us for the process that we sometimes need. Where do we consistently find Jesus? We find him in the journey. He's journeying alongside us. He gives us others to journey with. Thank goodness, because this would be so hard to do on our own. Sometimes he just lets us run it out, work it out, cry it out. And those moments can be confusing to others who are watching our journey. But Jesus knows how rich those moments are. It's not just about arriving at our destination squeaky clean. It's about the journey. It's about this beautiful path that he takes us on if we let him guide us. The Pharisees did nothing but criticize that journey of others, and that made Jesus angry. It grieved him. And I love that about my Jesus, because when my journey gets really messy, I want someone standing up for me. When it feels like everyone around could be looking on with critical eyes, I want Jesus to step in and say, give my girl some space. We're working this out. We're figuring it out. Don't we all want that? Don't we all need that? Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in grief and in anger, you are missing it. I am working in this circumstance. I am doing something in this person's heart. And if you'd stop focusing on the lines you've drawn and move in closer to this image bearer that I've created, 
it's pretty likely you're going to see my face. God is not the angry and worn out father blindly swinging his arm at us in the back seat. Our God climbs into the back seat with us. He woos us with his love. And he does it without fear or judgment or shame. He doesn't raise his voice and shout to get our attention. He lets the power of love do all the talking. And we can have the same beautiful impact in the lives of those around us if we will just love like he loves. And when we do that, we won't miss seeing his face. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience with us as we walk the road with you and with each other. Thank you for your grace that draws us away from boxes to check and leads us to the space we need to work it out in our hearts. Would you give us your eyes to see what you see? Would you help us to notice the kingdom of God taking shape around us? Show us how we can join you in that work. And would you get our attention when we are missing it? Thank you for the way you reach out to your people, for the way you fight for us, and for the ways you raise your voice in our defense. In Jesus' name, amen.